I want to, uh, to begin this morning sharing with you a message. Uh, going to be out of the book of Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bibles and you would like to follow along with us, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah this morning. Uh, I spent some time this week reading the, the story of Nehemiah. It captures my heart as a leader because Nehemiah was an incredible leader of the people of God. He was one of the ones that came back and helped to build the walls around Jerusalem. And uh, he talked about rebuilding the ruins and, and removing the shame and the disgrace that were on the people of God. And as I read that story and kind of got wrapped up in that, I had to ask myself the question, why were there ruins? Why was there shame and disgrace upon the people of God? Why did a kingdom need to be rebuilt? Why was there destruction and why was there a deportation that had to be reversed? And when we ask that question, we have to go back to the book of Jeremiah to understand and to discover why these people were deported and why the, the city of God was destroyed in the very first place. And uh, one of the things that Jeremiah was, was going to say to the people, he was called by God and his message was that there would be no return and there would be no rebuild without first there being repentance. Jeremiah's message is a tough, tough message. If, if you sit down and read through the book of Jeremiah, you're going to be amazed at, at how consistent his message remains, uh, but how unreceived and unwelcomed that message was. Um, so Jeremiah, his message is we can't return and we can't rebuild until we repent. And Judah's refusal to repent is what created the problem to begin with. The, the people of Judah had, had slipped away from the Lord. The people of God had kind of turned their back on the Lord. And because of that, God's judgment had come upon them. And so let me take a minute and kind of give you some background, the story, a little bit of history of what was going on in, in leading up to Jeremiah's time and then through Jeremiah's ministry, what God was doing and how that God was interacting with his people, trying to bring them back to him. Um, the, actually, Israel's decline began way before Jeremiah's birth. Uh, Assyria had begun to dominate Judah and taken over during uh, King Ahaz's reign. And then King Manasseh followed, who was a wicked, wicked king that set up the Asher poles and turned them to all kinds of pagan worship and idolatry. And, and over time, uh, Assyria began to conquer the known world. It was the superpower of the day. But as Assyria conquered the world, they, they spread themselves really thin. And, and, and they weren't able really to, to, to handle. They, they didn't have the structure set up to handle all that they had conquered. And so what began to happen was they stretched themselves thin and, and the money and all that was required to be able to support their, their great armies and all that kind of stuff began to kind of diminish. Um, it was hard for them to rule over this huge empire. Uh, a lot of the states and stuff that they had conquered, they allowed them to rule themselves, but these, these vassal states began to kind of push back on Assyria and test their authority and realize that, that they could... Uh, could maybe come out from underneath Assyria's authority. And so uh, a king named Josiah was, uh, was, was put on the throne there back in Judah, and he, was, he began some sweeping reforms. The, the kings prior to him had gone off into paganism and into idolatry, into all kinds of, of uh, false gods. And so what begins to happen is Josiah comes in, and he, he issues these sweeping reforms throughout the, the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern half of, of Israel. He's even able to branch off into Israel and to, to, to take his reforms into Israel. And for a little while, it looks like the Israelites are going to turn their hearts back to God. Uh, it was kind of forced from the government, forced from the king and, and the people in order to, to just blend in and to keep from, from being persecuted. They, they went along with those reforms. But as these reforms are taking place, Babylon begins to emerge as a major world power. 
and they began to take over the Assyrian Empire. Uh, in that process, they, they, Babylon begins to be challenged by Egypt. And what begins to happen is that, that there's a conflict that breaks out between Egypt and Babylon as, as Egypt tries to, to exert its independence. And, and caught in the middle of that is, is Israel. And King Josiah dies during that time. And as he dies, all of the reforms that he had set in place begin to be uh, turned back around. There was uh, one of his sons named Jehoahaz who uh, was appointed the king. He only lasted for three months and then he was deposed because uh, he supported an anti-Egyptian party because the Egyptians had basically forced Babylon back far enough that they could take over Israel. And, and so Israel was now under Egyptian leadership, but this new king who only lasted for three months revolted against the Egyptians and, and, and was a part of, a, of an anti-Egyptian party back there in Judah. And you can see the political turmoil of their day. And then... Another man named Jehoiakim took over and was appointed as king after Jehoahaz was deposed. He was a wicked king that led them right back into all of their idolatry and, and all of the sin that had been the mark of King Manasseh. Um, eight years into this, Babylon comes back and reconquers Egypt, and they take over the control of, uh, of Israel as well. Uh, Jehoiakim pledges his support to Babylon, but then later decides he knows better and he revolts. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar shows up and, and lays siege to, to Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and reports are kind of sketchy here what happened to Jehoiakim, but many think that his people assassinated him in order to appease Nebuchadnezzar. He was opposed to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and they, the, the city people knew that if they continued that opposition, that, that Nebuchadnezzar would just crush them. And so they, they assassinate um, their king, Jehoiakim. Uh, he is replaced by his son, Jehoiachin. So these guys have similar names, but uh, he's only king now for three months, and then Nebuchadnezzar deposes him and takes him off to Babylon. Look at all the change in the political turmoil. A month here, a month there, three months here, eight years there. It's just changing very, very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar replaces Jehoiakim with a guy named Zedekiah and puts Zedekiah on the throne. But Zedekiah eventually revolts against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar sends his army into Jerusalem and he seizes, surrounds Jerusalem and just seals it off for 18 months and basically starves the people out. Disease and all kinds of things set in. The water supply goes down, the food supply is used up, and the people of, 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 of uh, Jerusalem are just choked out until they finally have to just give in. He breaks in, he, he, he crushes the walls of Jerusalem, he breaks down the city uh, walls, he, he burns the city gates, he destroys the city. And in this time period is when the temple is destroyed. Uh, many of the leaders and the powerful are deported out of Israel and out of Judah and Jerusalem at this time, and they're taken back to um, Back to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's place there in Babylon. Um, some were left behind. Some that they thought were not quite as important. Jeremiah was one of the ones left behind. And we'll see this morning that, that the reason Jeremiah was not considered important was that nobody listened to him. <laughs> nobody heeded his word. Everybody just, just hated him and thought he was horrible. And so he wasn't seen as influential. He, he, listen, this is, this is the story of Jeremiah. He preaches God's word exactly as God gave it to him for 40 years, and nobody listened. No changes really took place. He, 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 he's the guy that, that puts his finger in the water, pulls it out, and you can't see any difference. And you're going, this guy never even left a mark on his world. 
So he's left behind. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah as the governor now. So what's happened is after he conquers Israel, he's not going to let them have their own king anymore. So he sends in a governor, somebody. He, he, the Judah was incorporated as a Babylonian empire, and he sends in Gedaliah as this, as this governor. But a few years later, his governor is assassinated. And in that assassination, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's guy is just taken out. And the people realize in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar is fixing to crush us. We thought it was bad before. It's going to be really bad. And they grab Jeremiah and they take him off to Egypt. Against his will, it seems, uh, he wanted to stay behind and continue the work that God had given him to do. And the people grabbed him and, and, and he doesn't really have a choice. And he, fly, he fled to Egypt underneath Nehemiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. And, um, and we assume that that's where he's died. His story just cuts off. He's taken to Egypt, and, and that's the last that we hear of Jeremiah. So he's, he's born under this king Manasseh who was wicked. He's called by God during the reign of Josiah, who is a king that, that brought sweeping reforms and tried to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And then he dies underneath this, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was just wicked. Forty years of his ministry is basically divided up into four distinct parts. He starts his ministry when he's called. Uh, we believe he was a young teenager when God called him. I want you to imagine this. He is a young man, 16 to 18, 19 years old, not the age of, of a lot of our guys here this morning. And God calls him to be a prophet who's going to call out the wicked king, who's going to call the, the wicked people of Israel, who's going to call out the priests and the prophet who are prophesying lies to the people of God. And God calls this young 18, 19-year-old to be his spokesman to a nation that will not listen. And for the next 40 years, he's going to do that. So 18 years uh, in this first, this, this first period, 18 years is going to be from his call till the end of Josiah's death. Now, again, Josiah is doing sweeping reform, so it's kind of a weird period for him. He's called to give this negative message of, of the coming doom and the coming judgment, yet on the outside, it seems like the nation's kind of turning back to God. He, he, his message is, if you don't repent, God's going to send destruction. And, and nobody listens, but Josiah, because he's a king, issues and forces these reforms. And it seems like on the outside, things are getting better, but they're really not. And that's evident because the minute Josiah is, is put to death, all the reforms are done away with. The next 12 years, from Josiah's death to the, the king Jehoiachin, um, he, uh, he, he has a section there where he works. The next uh, period in his life is the next 10 years where he goes from King Zedekiah to the fall of Jerusalem in 587. And then those final five years or so are the time that he's living in Jerusalem after the, the deportation of everybody before he's uh, forcibly taken down into Egypt. And so at his birth, uh, Syria, Assyria controlled uh, Judah. By his death, Babylon has controlled it with a brief stint in between where Egypt had some control and, and Jeremiah is, a, is, a, is known as the weeping prophet. Not because he was a, a crybaby, but Jeremiah wept over the, the coming fate of his people. He was broken because he knew the word of God was true. He knew the judgment of God was coming. He knew that if something didn't change in their nation soon, that there would soon be no nation left. And the more he preached and the more the people pushed back, the more he realized that they were on a crash course with this destruction that was coming. Jeremiah lived out his ministry at odds with the other prophets of that day. Not God's prophets, but these false prophets that the people had 
called to themselves. Much like Timothy is told in, in the New Testament that, that there's coming a day where people will gather around themselves uh, uh, prophets and men of God who will say what their itching ears want to hear. That was taking place in Jeremiah's day. In fact, God calls them out and says, you, you just put around yourself prophets that say what you want them to say. And so he was at odds with these other prophets. And this tension that he felt between these false prophets and himself was really on two separate fronts. It was on the front with a, a political uh, tension where uh, because Jeremiah was, was predicting and, uh, this judgment and this fall of Jerusalem, he was labeled by the politicians of that day as a traitor. How dare you say that our nation is going to fall? You're a Babylonian sympathizer. You are a guy who just wants to see uh, Babylon come in and, and conquer us. And so he was, he was pushed back against by the political parties of that day because he refused to regurgitate the party line. And so therefore he was rejected by the party loyalist. He was mistreated, sometimes beaten, abused, locked up, beard plucked out, hair pulled out, all kinds of harsh treatment against Jeremiah because he spoke the truth as God gave it to him that destruction was coming. He had pushback from the political world, but he also had pushback from the theological world, from the religious world. What Jeremiah was preaching and proclaiming did not fit their theological mindset. Now follow me on this. The religious world was pushing back on Jeremiah because Jeremiah was saying the kingdom is about to fall. In their mind, they looked back and said that God had made an everlasting covenant with them. And he wouldn't renege on that. That they were God's chosen people. That they were special among all nations. That God's favor rested upon them. And, and they used all these theological verses that they would pull, sometimes out of context, to say we could never fall. And we can never be destroyed. And, and, and God loves us too much to let what Jeremiah is saying happen to us. And so he was convinced, Jeremiah was, that sin would bring judgment. And therefore the nation was going to, to be punished. But his opponents argued that God loved them unconditionally. That God would never let harm come to them. That destruction did not fit their theology. That they could do what they wanted to do. And somehow God would just let them get away with it. They even looked at the, the, the current events of their day and of their time and use those events as proof to support their false arguments here's what they would say they would say well back in 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 722 when the northern half of the nation was destroyed israel when it went down and and, and samaria fell as a capital god still let us survive so that means that, that god loves us in judah the southern part of the kingdom more than he loved the northern part he let the northern part be destroyed and that's because they were wicked but we're not wicked. We're blessed. We are God's chosen. This is the real home of God. Jerusalem is the real kingdom. This is the real capital. And so they would look at events like that and say, look, God destroyed Israel, but he let Judah survive. And then there was a period where Sennacherib came in and he, he seized the, 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 the city of Jerusalem. And, and man, he locked them up like a bird in a cage, Scripture says. And that was in 701. But then miraculously that siege was lifted. And they said, see, God's protecting us. Nothing ever bad could ever happen. There could, there could never be a destruction of this nation. Nebuchadnezzar even came in 10 years before he did the major deportation. In 598 he came in and, and he sieged the city. And then he lifted that siege. And the city was spared and the temple was still standing and they said, see, proof, God protects us even from these evil kings, no matter how wicked or how bad we are, no matter how big the idolatry grows in our nation. 
What they did was to mistake God's patience for God's approval. Their theology was tied to their political worldviews. And so they, they had a hard time hearing and receiving the warnings that God sent through the prophet Jeremiah. Let me, let me give you some, a brief sample of some of Jeremiah's ministry. And we're going to kind of flip through some verses really quick. But I just want to give you a feel through the scripture of some of the, the things that, that took place in Jeremiah's life. First of all, his call is seen in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak, and I'm only a child. Remember, he's just a teenager at this point. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Teenagers, how would you like it if God showed up today and said, That's your assignment? You're to speak to power. You're to tell the nation that we're going to collapse and we're going to be overthrown and that this nation that we live in is, is going to be destroyed. Here's Jeremiah, a young teenager, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm scared to death. Verses 17 to 19, God encourages him and God says, get yourself ready, stand up and, and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. And oh, by the way, Jeremiah, they will fight against you, but they'll not overcome you. For I am with you and I will rescue you, says the Lord. I look at that as a pastor and say, if that was my job assignment, I'd think, man, I, I drew the short straw here. That's a tough one. That's a hard one to know from the very beginning, you're going to go and you're going to preach and all that's going to happen is people are going to push back. And, and they're going to come against you, but I'll protect you. They're, they're going to fight back, but, but don't worry, you're this bronze wall, this, this fortified city. You're, you're going to stand the, the test of time. You're, they're not going to be able to kill you. And they tried. When we look over in chapter 2, he gives them a call to remember what it used to be like. So his ministry is beginning. And in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, he says, For the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and you followed me through the desert. A land, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who devoured her were held, held guilty. And disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. His first call is a call to remember what we had, God says. Remember the intimacy that we once shared together. But when they wouldn't listen to that call, then God begins to present charges against them. In verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Has any nation ever changed its gods? 
I used to be your God. Has, has any other nation changed its gods, yet they are not really gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. The only one that can quench their thirst, can satisfy their soul, he's saying, and you've, you've forsaken me. And the second thing is that you've dug your own cisterns. You've tried to be self-supporting, self-sufficient. Say, I can handle this on my own. I don't need God. But the problem is that your broken cisterns cannot hold water. They will not last. He comes back in verse 25 of that same chapter. Verses 25 to 28. And he warns them that idols can't save them. He says, do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. This was the people's heart. He would try to turn them back from their foreign gods and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I love my gods. I love my idols. And I've got to chase after them. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. Now look who's disgraced. This is not just the political world of a king. Not just the the officials that rule with them. But this corruption has extended now to the priest and to the prophets. For they say to wood, you are my father. To stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their back to me and not their faces. Yet, when they're in trouble, (laughs) they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods that you made for yourself? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you do towns, O Judah. God begins to call them out and say, look, you've turned to these false gods and your idols can't save you. They're powerless. And yet in good times, that's where you go. And in bad times, you come running back to me, God says. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 15 says, during the the reign of King Josiah, he's the one that that, that brought about the reforms. The Lord said to me, haven't you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. In other words, Judah, you watch what happened to Israel. And and destruction came upon the northern kingdom, and and you thought somehow that you could do the same and get away with it. You saw what happened. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce, and I sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister, Judah, had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. And because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. And in spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. That's what took place during the reign of Josiah. Churches were filled. The people came. They offered their sacrifices, but their hearts never did return to God. They return to me, but only in pretense, God says. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. 
So go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God, that you scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and I will bring you back to Zion. And then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and an understanding. God's begging his people to come back. He says, your priest and, your, and, and, and all those who lead in the religious world, they're, they're corrupt, but I'll give you shepherds after my heart if you'll just come back. Verse 22, he says, return faithless people, I'll cure you. And then chapter 4, he, he says, if, if you will return, verse 1, if you'll return, O Israel, return to me. If you'll put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil that you've done. Burn with no one to quench it. Here they are in the middle of this, and he's saying, you've got to repent, you've got to return, or else you're going to be destroyed. But the people continue their rebellion. In chapter 5, verses 20 through 31, He says to Jeremiah, announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people. You've wept, but you do not see. You you have eyes, but you do not see. I'm sorry, you have ears, but you do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I'm the one who made the sand, sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier that it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people, they have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say, they do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives us autumn and spring rains and seasons, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. In other words, God takes care of you, but you don't acknowledge him. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait, men who, who, like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch men. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. And they have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. And the priests rule by their own authority. And my people, they love it this way. What a pronouncement against the people. 
Do you see why Jeremiah was not loved? Do you see why the people would push back against this message? Nobody wants to be confronted with their sin. Nobody wants to be called out when they're, when they're living a, a false lie, a fake life. Nobody wants that. But God calls them out. And he begs them to return. And what's their response? Well, nothing bad's happened yet. I mean, look how wicked we are and we're still alive. I got away with it yesterday. Why can't I get away with it tomorrow? And they mistake the patience of God for the approval of God. They say, well, if God hasn't struck us dead yet, then surely God's not going to strike us dead. If we've survived through all these other tumultuous times in our nation's history and we're still here, then, then why do we think that we, we won't be here tomorrow? And their wickedness piles up. And the church joins in. And the prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And the people of God seem to love it that way, God says. But chapter 6, he issues them a warning. Verse 8, he says, Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you, and I will make your land desolate so no one can live in it. And then verse 13, he says, For the least to the greatest are all greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, and they all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. You understand what he's saying right there? The prophets and the priests see the sin, but they treat it like it's just a scratch. And, and, and not a fatal wound. They, they recognize the sin and say, ah, it's, it's no big deal. The people turn from God and they just slap him on the wrist and say, man, come on, come on. And he says, they dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them. And this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and then walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I pointed a watchman over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, O nations, observe, O witnesses, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the, the fruit of their schemes, because they've not listened to my words and rejected my law. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. We could go on through every chapter of the book of Jeremiah and this same message plays out again and again and again. As Jeremiah says, guys, we are a wicked people. We have turned our backs on God. We've grown self-sufficient. We've dug our own cisterns thinking that we can be self-supported without the help of God. But those cisterns have cracks and the water just runs through. 
It's no wonder that Jeremiah was ostracized, was pushed aside, was ridiculed, was harmed by the people. Nobody bought his message. Nobody heeded his warnings. It seemed to Jeremiah and to others that he was a failure. Yet he stayed true to God's word. When God spoke and said, tell my people, he would go and would tell God's people. And Jeremiah was finally proven long after his death to be a true prophet of God. If you go to the book of Ezra, Ezra is the one that came back and rebuilt the temple. The opening verse of the book of Ezra says this in so many words. That God, according to the prophet Jeremiah, turned the heart of King Darius to proclaim the release of God's people and the rebuilding of the temple of God in Jerusalem. How do we know Jeremiah was a success? We don't see it until years later. Seventy years of deportation later. Jeremiah's already gone dead in Egypt somewhere. And yet, his warnings are vindicated. During his whole 40 years of ministry, Jeremiah was given one main message. And that was this. If repentance does not occur, then judgment from God will surely come. Let me ask you a question. Is that still true today? Is sin really that big of a deal? Is it a fatal wound or is it just a scratch on the hand? Is it something that we should take serious or or is it something we should just blow off and say, well, you know, there's grace out there. It'll cover anything I do wrong. We talked last week about the the goodness of God's grace, but we never want to abuse that grace. We never want to just grow so comfortable with grace that we just take sin lightly. And and so we've got to ask the question, is is this message that that if repentance repentance does not occur, that judgment from God will surely come, is that still true in our day? Is sin a serious thing? In Jeremiah's day, few people responded to the message of judgment. Few people thought sin was really that big of a deal. More people revolted against it. More people pushed back. More people just tried to silence the prophet speaking the truth of God. Yet Jeremiah remained faithful to God. By every human measurement, Jeremiah was a complete failure. But by God's standards, he was a huge success, not because the people listened, Not because the nation turned back to God, but because Jeremiah was faithful to do what God had created and called him to do. Maybe you're thinking this morning, Rob, God God hasn't called me to be a prophet of doom. God hasn't called me to be a Jeremiah and to go, uh, you know, speak to the president or speak to the country or speak to the priest and the prophets and all the others that are out there. Maybe, maybe God hasn't called me to that prophetic role. And that may be true. Maybe God hasn't called you to be a prophet. 
But God has called every one of us, every one of us who bear the name of Christ to take our sins serious. He's called every one of us to repent when God makes known our sin. He's called every one of us to return to God by his grace and by his mercy to come running back to him and to find that forgiveness and to to, to find that restoration of the relationship. He's called every one of us, maybe not to be the prophet, but to obey the words of the prophet, to obey the words of the scriptures. So maybe we're not called to be Jeremiah, but we're certainly called to respond to his message and his call for repentance. Now, some will say Jeremiah was just his prophet of doom and gloom, but Jeremiah was much more than that. Jeremiah was a prophet that, that, that didn't just preach doom and gloom. He offered hope and restoration. He's the one that talked about the return, that talked about the 70 years away, but then the, the return and the restoration and what God was going to do as he restored the remnant. He was a, a man that held out hope and promised restoration. But he warned the people that those things could only take place after repentance. Jeremiah spoke of a bright future, but that bright future was awaiting the repentance of God's people. It's Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 11 and following, the the verses that we love to to quote and put on our, our high school graduations. I know the plans I have for you. That's in the middle of this crisis. And he's saying, he's saying, there's still hope. God's not done with you yet. I know the plans that God has for you. I know what God wants to do with you. But listen to the context in which those verses are, are, are spoken and penned. He says in, in verse 11, after verse, verse 10, he talks about the 70 years. And when the 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and I'll fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. And then comes that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and then you will come and you will pray to me. And I will listen to you and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. In other words, the promise of restoration, the promise of good days ahead, it only comes after repentance. It only comes when you seek me with all of your heart. We take that verse out of context and say, oh man, God's got great plans for me. He does, but it always follows repentance. It always follows us coming back to him. Jeremiah wasn't just doom and gloom. He was a prophet of hope and restoration of a bright future if the people would just repent. But he insisted the rebuild could not precede the repent. Guys, I think there's bright days ahead for our country if we as a country will turn back to God. I think there's a bright days ahead for the church of, of Jesus Christ if we as the church will turn back to God and if we will take our sins serious and, and, and if we will, will take the word of God at, 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 its, at its value that it's given to us and we will live this out and we will seek with all of our heart to do all that we can. But the rebuild cannot precede the repent. We can't get about the rebuild until we first deal with the repentance. Which brings me back to where I started this morning. I was enjoying reading about the rebuilding in Ezra and Nehemiah. And man, I'd love to camp out there and preach for six months on those, on those two books of the Bible and talk about all the good things that God wants to do with the people of God. But here's the truth. You can't rebuild 
until you repent. And the good days don't come until we deal with the bad stuff that stands between this. And I think the same thing is true for our country. We, we need to be rebuilt as a country. We need to be reunited, refocused. But none of that can occur without repentance happening first. And guys, listen, it's not our politicians that are going to call us to repentance. That's not their job. That's not how they get elected. That's not a popular message that gets them votes. It's the church's responsibility. We are the Jeremiah's of today. We are the ones that are to hear from God. Speak the truth when it's popular and when it's not. Warn of what is to come if we continue to ignore sin and treat it as a minor scratch instead of a a life-threatening cut. Scripture says that judgment will start with us, the people of God. And if we can't stand, how will our world stand? If we don't repent as the people of God, we can never lead our nation to repent. And without repentance, judgment is not far off. You say, Rob, there's no way America's going to fall. Really? Do you realize that in in, in Jeremiah's day, in his 40-year ministry or his 70-year life or whatever it was that he lived, because we're not sure exactly when he died, do you realize that in his lifetime, Jeremiah saw three superpowers collapse? The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, all. And he saw a fourth one rise to power, the Persians. Don't tell me that superpowers can't be taken down. God establishes nations. He he raises nations. And he humbles nations. Don't make the mistake that the people of Judah made, assuming that their nation, because of its blessings and its prosperity, that that was just proof that God approved their immoral lifestyles. I'm afraid, and I may be wrong, but I'm afraid that we in America just assume that because we're blessed and we're prosperous and we're one of the richest nations in the world, that we've got God on our side and that he just approves us and that God couldn't make it without us. And that's a dangerous place for us to be as a a nation. We mourn and we weep And we protest more over an election than we do over sin. That's hard to say. But I think it's where we're at. We've got to look to Scripture to be the measuring stick of where we stand before God. Not our wealth and our prosperity and our popularity in the world. We've got to look to Scripture.
and say, Lord, how do we measure up as a nation? We've got to look to Scripture as individuals and say, Lord, how do I measure up as a man, as a woman, as a college student, as a young child? How do I measure up, Lord, not by the world standards, because you can always find somebody worse than you, but how do I measure up with your word? How do I measure up with with what you require of me? Am I taking my sin serious? Am I doing everything I can in your power and by your grace to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that I might live as a man of God? Guys, I am not a prophet by any stretch of the imagination, never have claimed to be. So you can take what I'm about to say at at face value, but I really believe that God's trying to get our nation's attention right now. I think God is patiently trying to call us back to him. I think God is doing the same thing for the church. But I look at our nation and I look at all that's been happening just in recent months and years. Senseless killings that we watch on video. Protests and riots and insurrections. This emergence of conspiracy theories that just spin out of control. Soldiers lining our streets. Natural disasters coming faster and faster and faster and faster all across our nation. Whether it's floods or hurricanes or fires, we can't catch our breath anymore. Not to mention a pandemic with no end in sight. As soon as we think we're making a little bit of progress, there's a new variant that pops up and it just, do you see this stuff going on? And, and can we just ignore that and say that, that, that that's, that has nothing to do with, with God trying to get our attention? I don't think the cure for what, um, what ills America is just a vaccine. I don't think the cure for what ills America is just the election of somebody that I like. Or that lines up with my thoughts. I think the cure for America is to repent. And to come back wholeheartedly to God. Not because we're forced to. By a king or a president. Or Congress. But because we choose to as the people of God. To humble ourselves before. The God who gave himself for us and to seek him more than we seek anything else. Man, if we turn to God's word more than we turn to our news sources, where would we be? If we obeyed God's voice more than we listened to our flesh, where would we be? And if we valued others as much as we valued our opinions, how would this world change? 
So if judgment's going to begin with the house of God, we dare not delay our own repentance. We dare not ignore our own sin. I think there's still time for us to repent. But if we don't, I believe judgment awaits. If not a national judgment, again, I'm not a prophet. But certainly every one of us is going to stand before the Lord one day. We've got to see the seriousness of sin. And not just other people's sin, but but our own sin. And when God reveals our sin to us, guys, we need to stop everything else and immediately repent. Turning away from that sin and turning back to him for the grace that is needed to cover our sin and our shortcoming. This morning I ask us all to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand before he has to humble us with his mighty hand. Is there something in your life today? I'm not talking about anybody else. There's something in your life today that you need to repent of. Some sin that's in your life that maybe nobody else even knows about, but it's there and it's, it's real and you know that it's there and this morning God would bring that to your mind. Something that, that's mastered you and you can't seem to let go of it. Are there things in our world that today we've got to let go of and we've got to repent and we've got to come back to God? Is there something today that you need to repent of? And then finally, will you turn away from your sin and turn to God and find his healing, find that restoration and allow him to rebuild what the enemy has taken away? Let's pray.